0: This is lesson 27 in the book of Romans, and we're beginning chapter 9. We're right on schedule here, halfway through. I said it was going to take a year, and we're in lesson 27, beginning chapter 9. For the last two weeks, we've been preparing, actually, for the second part of the letter. And in doing so, what we did was we established the purpose of the letter. And what we're seeing is the seeds of a very anti-Semitic Roman church. The history of the Roman church is one of anti-Semitism and its brother replacement theology. And what we're seeing in the letter to the Romans are the seeds of this church. We skipped ahead to the latter part of the letter and we found that the problem in Rome is that non-Jewish believers are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. We're told that in chapter 11. We're also told that they're boasting over the natural branches or the Jewish people. And we also found that there are those there that are causing dissension over food and over days of worship. We're told that these are men who are not following the Messiah, but they're following their own appetites. And that wording tells us that these men are those who believe in the Messiah Yeshua, but because a non-believing Jew would not be expected to be a follower of Messiah. So we're talking about Gentiles who claim to be following the Messiah, but in fact, in their eating, are controlled by their own appetites. And so we left off last week with these Gentiles in Rome, talking about how they had gotten so powerful and so misdirected. And we found that the Jewish people, both those who believed in Yeshua and those who don't believe in Yeshua, uh, are returning to Rome after a five-year eviction from Rome they were told to leave by the Roman Emperor Claudius and the letter is being written around 55 to 58 common era and the Jewish people of Rome were evicted about 49 common era by Claudius with his death in 54 common era they're starting to return and it also opens the door for Paul to make his first visit and so the point is for a long time This congregation in Rome has been without the guidance of the Jewish people who founded it, who shaped it, and taught these Gentiles the word of God. These Romans have been exposed also to this expulsion of the Jewish people in Rome and the very anti-Semitic rhetoric that came along with that expulsion. And with all this in mind, now let's read the first verses of chapter 9. I'm telling you the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Messiah for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites." to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, and the promises, who are the fathers of from whom the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. You know, when you read this, you've got to be struck by the fact that it's almost as if Paul is making an oath here. He says, I'm telling you the truth, the Messiah, I'm not lying. Why on earth would Paul begin the true reason for writing this letter with, I'm not lying. He says, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's making an oath to his truthfulness and doing it in the name of the Holy Spirit. And by swearing by the Holy Spirit to its truthfulness of what he's about to say, If what he's about to say would not be true, then he would be guilty of using the Lord's name in vain. So this is serious stuff. You know, when someone says the Spirit of God showed me this, or the Spirit of God told me that, they're bolstering what they're about to say by evoking the name of God, by evoking the Holy Spirit. They're lending credibility to their words, and if it isn't God... They have a serious problem because they just used the Lord's name in vain. Why would he feel the need to go to such great lengths to begin his letter this way? Well, there can only be one reason. And that is he doubts that they're going to accept what he's about to say. And what is he about to say? Well, the Jewish people are called of God. They are the adopted sons of God. They too have received the glory. They too are in covenant with God. They are the true brothers of Messiah in Yeshua, in the flesh, not just according to the adoption, but according to the flesh. And Paul doubts his authority, and he doubts that his words are going to be accepted. And since we've skipped ahead last week and the week before, we can see why he needs to say this. And he needs to begin with an oath like this as to the truthfulness of his words in the name of the Holy Spirit. The reason is stated in chapter 11. We skipped ahead last week and we looked at it. These Romans think so highly of themselves and they've been boasting over the natural branches of which he's one. Not just that, they don't know Paul from Adam. Who's this Paul fellow? I mean, sure they've heard of him, but they don't know him. Remember, the letter began with, I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so. Till now. And so here we have a letter being received by those who may have heard that he's an apostle to the Gentiles and a leader of the Kahalat of Yeshua, but they also know he's a Jew. And because he's a Jew and they think of themselves more highly than they ought, Paul doubts that they will accept what he's about to say. Because he's a Jew and he's about to come to the defense of his Jewish people, he feels that his words will be viewed prejudicially. And so, the extra emphasis. He more than likely thinks that they will think he's a Jew promoting and protecting those of his own nationality. In chapter 8, listen, in chapter 8, remember, he told these Gentiles that they were adopted as sons. He told them that God foreknew them, that God also predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son, and those that he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. That's what he told them at the end of chapter 8. And now he's about to tell them the same thing of the Jewish people who do not even accept Yeshua as the Messiah. He's saying, look, you're boasting over, over those who are loved by God in the same way he loves you. And he expressed that love to, his Jew, to the Jewish people long before you. He's saying, hey, that adoption of sons that you received, well, they were adopted And what did he tell him in chapter 1 and verse 2? He said, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. They were adopted first. He's about to tell him, hey, you know the glory that we talked about? Well, they received it as well, and they received it first because to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And what about that wonderful promise of the world to come that was given to Abraham, who is now your father by faith? Yep, it was given to the Jew first, then to the Greek. And remember the law that we spoke about as being holy and righteous and good and a guide for our lives? Well, guess what? It was given to the Jewish people first because it's to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And one more thing, that Messiah who God predestined that we be conformed into His image, the one whom with were co-heirs, well, He was and ever will be brothers with His Jewish people. And they are co-heirs to the promises as well because, as you know, it's to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's not what you want to hear. If you've been boasting over the the natural branches, if you think you're the top banana and you've been treating the Jewish people badly. Another thing, in case you haven't noticed, Paul has been kind of tiptoeing through this letter to the Romans. Not at all like his other letters. You know, if you read his other letters, he's like a bull in a china closet. Right? He doesn't pull no punches. Like me, I don't pull punches either. But when he rebukes, he's not walking on eggshell, folks. And this is a letter of correction. And yet, you'd hardly recognize it was a letter of correction by reading it. Let me give you an example. Both to the Romans and to the Thessalonians, he is recorded as telling them to keep themselves away from certain individuals who are causing trouble. Let me read what he says to the Romans in chapter 16 and verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. Notice the word he uses here. He says, I urge you, brothers, And if you look at the word in the Greek, I put it up here for you. It means desire, entreat, pray. It's almost as if he's saying, please, brothers, keep yourselves away from those who cause dissension. Now, for almost the same thing, this is what he says to those he knows in Thessalonica. He says this, now we command you, brethren. In the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, keep yourself away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition that you receive from, me, from us. Whole different word there. Not urge, not please. I command you. And there's the Greek word. I put it up here for you. Charge, command, declare. He's not walking on eggshells here because he's sure of his audience. Not so with the Romans. The book of Romans is not your typical Pauline letter. This letter is being written to those he doesn't know. And he's unsure of how it will be accepted. And it may be the very reason he does all the name dropping at the end of the letter as well. He greets more people and drops more name at the end of this letter than he does in all the other letters combined. He doesn't even know if they're sure of the ramifications of the Gospels. Why do you suppose we had those first eight chapters? Because he doesn't know that they even know the good news, so he tells them. If you remember last week, we established that the that the Jewish people had been evicted from Rome in the Book of Acts. Let's read it again. Acts chapter eighteen, verses one through four. It says, "After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently." Come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Remember we established this is happening around 49 common era and Claudius dies around 54 common era. Now listen to the end of the book of Romans. It says this in chapter 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Messiah, whom for, for my life risk their own necks, and to whom not only I do give thanks, but also the assemblies of the Gentiles, also greet the assembly that is in their home. Aquila and Priscilla are now back in Rome. And guess what? They found it quite the mess. Let me ask you this. Just think about this possibility for a minute. Could Aquila, a Jew have an assembly in his own home and is meeting in his own home due to the ill treatment they received when they returned from the Gentiles in their congregations? Could it be that they have contacted their dear friend Paul about the problems in Rome and asked for his help? With that in mind, you can almost hear Paul thinking, I don't even know these folks. Because I've had people ask me to do the same thing. I don't want to go to there. I don't know these folks. They aren't going to accept what I have to say. The point I'm trying to make is this isn't a typical Pauline letter. And it's written with great care not to step on anybody's toes. It's written to a people he's not sure will receive a sterner reprimand from him. He's not even sure that they will accept what he's about to say about the Jewish people. Let's put this together for a moment. The Roman assembly of believers at first was more than likely started without an apostle, as we defined apostle, but it was probably spread by those returning from Jerusalem after Pentecost that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. They would have been meeting in the synagogues of Rome with other Jews at that time. And during this time, we would have new Gentiles coming to the faith in Messiah Yeshua. And also, more than likely, many of the God-fearers that were already in the synagogues have come to faith in Messiah Yeshua, the Gentiles. And no doubt, there was friction between these two groups. I mean, you got unbelievers and believers in the same synagogue. And you know uh, how heated arguments about the Messiah can get, right? Well... Around 49 common era, the Jewish people, to include the Jewish followers of Messiah like Aquila, are expelled from Rome and more than likely don't return for about five years till 54 common era when Claudius dies. Now what would have happened to those assemblies in Rome that were now only non-Jews? no longer had the Jewish element to teach them the scriptures, to keep them on tracks as to food and to days of worship. And they also had a stream of fresh pagans coming in who have heard of Messiah Yeshua. Well, I can tell you this, because there's nothing new under the sun if you were to take me out of this congregation and you were to take the elders out of this congregation who all understand the vision of the community and also remove those who were here from the very beginning, they were taken out. And if those who remain continue to meet and continue to bring new people in here, I can tell you this, in five years, you would not recognize Kihilat Sar Shalom. Even with my being here, I can't tell you how many people have tried to come in here and change this place. Well, if I weren't here and I weren't so firm and the elders weren't so firm, they would have more than likely succeeded. Some of the things that would have changed would have been like the Torah scrolls in the There would be no probably no procession anymore. They would not have a prominent role in the service any longer. How about the Onigs? If those who were firm in their eating of Clean and not unclean food were removed from the assembly. How long would it be before that got relaxed? What if those who separated meat and dairy, not because we have to, but because we want to be not because we want to be sensitive to the Jewish people and not offend the Jewish people, who come into our midst? What if they were removed? How long would it be before you saw cheeseburgers on the Oneg table, or God forbid, ham and cheese? How long would it be before the days of worship would change? People started to complain, Oh, we don't have to fast on Yom Kippur. We know the true meaning of Yom Kippur. We don't have to observe these things anymore. And what's wrong with this day or that day? After all, we're not celebrating the goddess Ishtar. We're thinking of Jesus on that day. Well, what do you suppose the Jewish people like Aquila found when they returned to Rome after five years? We can assume, again, since there's nothing new under the sun, they would have found a very Gentile church, one that would be resistant to the Jewish people, customs and traditions and their views of the law, one that was not concerned with how they ate or the days they worshipped on, one that had a very pagan influence, so much so that Aquila and Priscilla, along with others who were returning, who were careful about things, started to meet separately in their own homes. The very Messianic Jewish congregations that they had left no longer resembled what they were. The new Roman converts coming into these communities would not have checked their anti-Semitism at the door either. The expulsion tells us that there was a wave of anti-Semitism that went through Rome in 49 Common Era during the reign of Claudius. You know, I want to tell you something. Anti-Semitism is not just anti-Jewish people, it's anti-Torah, it's anti-Messiah, and it certainly is anti-Paul's message of the gospel. The anti-Semite would not say, I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Messiah for the sake of my brethren and kinsmen, according to the flesh who are the Israelites. Nor would he accept it if he did hear it. You know, we looked at a statement of an anti-Semite, one of the early Roman church fathers a few weeks ago. I want to examine it today in a little more detail, because what we're seeing here in Rome are the seeds of a very anti-Semitic church being formed. Listen to Justin Martyr, 140 common era, we're not moving that far ahead here, The custom of circumcising the flesh handed down from Abraham was given to you as a distinguishing mark to set you off from the other nations and from us Christians. The purpose of this was that you and only you might suffer the afflictions that are now justly yours, that only your land be desolate and your cities ruined by fire. That the fruits of your land be eaten by strangers before your very eyes. That not one of you be permitted to enter the city of Jerusalem. Your circumcision of the flesh is the only mark by which you can certainly be distinguished from other men. As I stated before, it was, it was, by, it was by reason of your sins and the sins of your fathers, among other precepts, that God imposed Upon you, the observance of the Sabbath as a mark. You see, anti-Semitism is more than hatred of the Jewish people. It perverts our wondrous God and the Word of God. God gave Israel the sign of circumcision as the sign of a covenant given to Abraham, our father, through faith. And yes, it was to separate them from the rest of the nations, make them distinct from the rest of the nations. But if you look at scripture, we find the reason was not that they might suffer, as Justin Martyr says, has perverted it too. Let's read it. Here's why it was given to them. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you is to be circumcised. It was given as a sign of the covenant between Abraham and his descendants that by God that they would inherit the land of Israel. That they were in a special relationship with God. But according to Justin Martyr, he was to make them easy to distinguish from the nations so that they could suffer the afflictions. Now let me ask you, what Bible is he reading? He's certainly not reading the Bible we read. You know, Anti-Semitism takes this, Isaiah 58, verse 13. Listen to what it does to this. Isaiah 58 13 says this to the Jewish people If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, then you will delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Notice the blessing of God Upon the nation of Israel, those who keep his Sabbath and call it a delight and honor it. And not just Israel, but let's back up a couple of chapters. Chapter 56 and verse 6. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, And who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them the joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And what does an anti-Semite do with that? Well, we just read it. Let me read it again. I... I stated before it was by reason of your sins and the sins of your fathers, among other precepts, that God imposed upon you the observance of the Sabbath as a mark. It's not a delight according to martyr. It's not a blessing. But it's because of your sins and the sins of your fathers that God gave you the mark of the Sabbath. Now think about it. Since God gave Israel the Sabbath as they come up out of Egypt, what fathers would he be talking about? Those fathers Jacob, Isaac, Abraham? Really? Really? So again, you have to ask, what Bible is this guy reading? Anti-Semitism turns the gospel of God as told to Nicodemus, let's read it, Are Some of our favorite verses, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That same refrain is repeated. Let's go to John chapter 10, verse 17. It says, The reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. They take this wonderful good news that Yeshua came and suffered and died because of our sins so that we might be born again. And he did it out of love for his creation while you were still even in your mother's womb. He loved you. And anti-Semitism? Oh, they pervert that to this. And therefore, all this happened to you rightly and well, for you slew the just one. This guy doesn't even know the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. What Bible is he reading? You see, these are the seeds that Paul is addressing in Rome. When he says... As he did in chapter 11 and verse 18, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off of their, for their unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, I know this is hard to take, and it's quite a little little different, uh, quite a different look at the book of Romans than you probably heard in the past. Right? Right? (laughs) Right? Well, I don't care. (laughs) because I'm going to tell the truth anyway. You see what he says? Don't boast over the natural branches. It appears that the early church did not accept what Paul had to say, because boasting continued in Rome. And I can go, we looked at one quote from as early as 140, and I can go through the church, quotes of the church fathers from the early 2nd century all the way To who knows where. And we hear the same thing. Let's hear one from from 340. Constantine. As he speaks of Passover. Versus Easter. And truly in the first place. It seemed to everyone. A most unworthy thing. That we should follow the custom of the Jews. In the celebration of this. Most holy solemnity. Who polluted wretches. Have stained their hands. With a nefarious crime and are justly blinded in their minds it is fit therefore that rejecting the people the practice of this people we should perpetuate to all future ages the celebration of this rite in a more legitimate order which we have kept from the very first day of our lord's passion even to the present times let us then have nothing in common with the most hostile rabble of the jews We have received another method from our Savior. A more lawful and proper course is open to our most holy religion in pursuing this course with a unanimous consent. Let us draw ourselves, my much honored brethren, from that odious fellowship. That's what anti-Semitism does to the gospel. Let's read a few years later. This is just a few years later. This is like 360. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema, cursed, cut off from Messiah. You know, these are early quotes, but when we went through the life of the early believers, we went through... Papal quotes from nearly every century. And they were all the same, anti-Semitism. This anti-Semitism didn't stop with the Roman Catholic Church. It spread into Protestantism as well. Listen to what's spoken of Luther. This is what Luther wrote. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct. Now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming, if we do, we become sharers with their lies, cursing and blasphemy. Thus we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, we can con- we, nor can we convert the Jews. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues and schools and bury and cover with dirt, Whatever will not remain, burn. Second, I advise that their homes be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings, in which such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach, henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay at home. And sixth, I advise that usury be permitted permitted to them and that all cash and treasure, silver and gold, be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Now, I would invite you To compare the advice of Luther to the German church. He's advising the German church with the acts of Adolf Hitler. And you're going to find that Adolf Hitler took his advice. Because that's the very things that he did. And I know this is hard for we Christians, but I want you to know, I didn't write this stuff. It's part of history. I'm only reading it, so please don't shoot. Or throw your lunch at the messenger. And this is a very short version of the anti-Semitism of the Roman church, because I'm talking about Romans, and I don't want to talk about the, too much about the church. But the seeds of this church are what we're seeing in the letter to the Romans. Christians thinking more highly of themselves than they ought, Christians boasting over the natural branches. And what Paul calls boasting is in truth, what we call, and has justly been named, anti-Semitism. Listen, folks, as a community, we can, on April 27th, express our disgust with the direction of that early church and with anti-Semitism by joining in with the March of Remembrance at the state capitol on Holocaust Memorial Day, remembering what Hitler and Nazi Germany did to God's people and joining in with those who love God and his people Israel and saying, never again. Amen?